You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. I have uh, really enjoyed this Isaiah series. I've learned a lot. Hope it's benefited you as well. Today we wrap it up. And so let's go to God in prayer as we uh, conclude this series. Lord, my prayer for this morning is my prayer every time I get up to speak that um, the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you. Lord, I pray you'd make us attentive listeners this morning. Jesus, you want to teach us through your word, by your spirit. God, don't only give us ears to hear, but give us hearts that are willing to obey. And Lord, help us to embrace this beautiful vision of life together. Uh, that the world would be drawn to you, Jesus. Ask it for your sake. Amen. So a few nights ago, I ran to the store. It was late. I was hurrying. There was one employee. He was at the checkout. And as I'm coming up, I notice that he's wearing a mask. And not just any mask, a 49ers mask. Now, the kind of person who wears such a mask isn't just your average Niner fan. It's a very intense Niner fan. And I am a very intense Niner fan. And if you're not a Niner fan, you need to know this was a good week for Niners fans. Because by some miracle, we just acquired Christian McCaffrey, who's one of the most dynamic offensive players in the league. And so as I approached this young man, all I said was, dude, McCaffrey. And he ripped off his mask, and he's like, oh, yeah. And then we had a conversation, right? And it was just a deep dive into the Niners, and we're talking compensatory picks in the future and scheme and depth charts and injuries and, and NFC power rankings. And it's, it's the kind of conversation that if you don't like football, it's just insufferable, right? You can't stand when people talk that way. And maybe you find this opening illustration insufferable. Um, and that's fine. But, but here's the point. That mask was like a tribal marker, right? The minute I saw it, I'm like, oh, I know who you are. Let's talk. We had our own secret language, right? We are a culture of tribes. Sports tribes, social tribes, political tribes. And every tribe has a marker, don't they? They, they have something they put on that signifies, I belong to this group. These are my people. Might be a piece of clothing. Uh, might be a filter you put on your social media. Might be a bumper sticker. Might be a sign you put up in your yard saying, this is who I am. This is the tribe I belong to. But all of us have tribal markers, and that lets the world know, here's the team I am on. So the Bible is, is clear that Christians are a unique tribe among the peoples of the world and that uh, we stand out. At least we, we should stand out. That God makes us distinct, not just as individuals, but, but as a people. And our distinctiveness should be visible to the world. Today we're in Isaiah 61. Let's begin where the passage ends. Isaiah says this about God's people. You shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. 
their offspring, the church's offspring, shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. God's plan in human history is not just to save isolated individuals. It's actually to save a people for himself. And this people is called to stand out. In fact, when this people lives their life together, the nations see them, Isaiah says, and they call God's people priests. In the Old Testament, a priest was someone who represented God to the people. That's what the nations are supposed to see. As we live life together, we reflect God's character. There is something different about us. The nations see it. Not only do they see it, they want it. As the nations see something compelling about this community, they say, those people are blessed. And it's not just that we're distinctive, we're attractive. There's something magnetic about our life together and the nations are pulled in and they say, I want to be a part of this team. That's a pretty good vision of church, isn't it? That's pretty compelling. That's actually what God is after. That the, the church, the people of God, would have this distinctiveness that the nations would see it and that they would be drawn in. And so what are the markers? What does Christian community look like when it looks like this? What are the markers that signify to the world, wow, this community is different, and I want in? That's what I want to talk about. So today we're wrapping up this series on Isaiah. Next week I'm excited because we are starting a brand new series. We're going back to the New Testament. I get forward to the New Testament. And we're going to look at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Eight or ten months, we're just going to be camped out there, talking about church divisions, carnal Christians, to marry or not to marry, to divorce or not to divorce, fornication, speaking in tongues, men's and women's roles, prophecy, incest, kicking people out of church. There is nothing controversial in the book of 1 Corinthians. I can't wait. It's going to be great. But today, let's wrap up Isaiah. We've spent the last few months in Isaiah, and we've been looking at this mysterious character called the servant. The servant is God's man to accomplish God's mission. And when Jesus comes on the scene, who does he claim to be? He says, I am that servant that Isaiah was talking about. What does that mean? It means that we actually can't understand Jesus' mission apart from the book of Isaiah. This is the template that Jesus uses to understand his own work in the world. That's why many in church history have called Isaiah the fifth gospel because it's such a compelling and clear portrait of who Jesus is and what he will accomplish. So we've taken the last few months just looking at the servant. Who is he? We've seen that the servant is the perfect follower of God. He's obedient. He is faithful and succeeds where God's people have always failed. He's resilient. He triumphs in the day of adversity. He doesn't faint. He keeps following God even when it's hard. He is God's light to the nations. He, he is finally the follower of God who reveals what God is like. But we also saw that this is a servant who will be despised and rejected and will suffer. In fact, he'll be killed. But the suffering of the servant we saw is actually his triumph. That, that in his death and then in his resurrection, the servant saves a people and forgives their sins and makes God's people righteous before him. 
The servant saves us from sin for God's purposes, and then he gives this free offer to come and experience salvation. And this servant, he doesn't just forgive our sin, he frees us from sin. That's what we saw last week, that the servant transforms us into people who actually live the way God wants humans to live. Humans who can say no to sin and yes to righteousness and obey from the heart. So we've looked at all of that, and if you put all of that together, what do you see? You see Jesus, don't you? That's what this is pointing to. Today we're going to continue this theme of transformation, and what I want you to see is this. The servant transforms us not just individually, but corporately. He changes us into a distinct people, a distinct tribe that's called to bless every tribe and tongue and nation. The gospel, what Jesus does for us, it creates a certain kind of people with a certain kind of culture. Paul calls this adorning the gospel, displaying the gospel in how we behave toward each other. And so the question for this morning is this. When God's people are transformed by the gospel, what does our life together look like? How is our life together different than any other human community? Two things from Isaiah 61. First, I want you to see that a transformed community is a rejoicing people. Second, that it's a restoring people. What does that mean? It means that when we are transformed by the gospel, we are a community of joy unlike anything the world has ever seen. And we're a community of justice where relationships finally work right. Where human community finally works the way God designed it to be. And when we are a joyful community and a just community, a rejoicing and restoring community, it's compelling. That's when the church becomes magnetic. So, let's look at these marks. Mark 1 is joy. We are a people of joy And I don't think there's anything more critical for the world to see about the church than joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, said it this way, that as we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil, nothing is more important than that we, Christians, should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution. Here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should stand out as men and women apart. How? People characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. The hallmark of our community, the thing that signals that we belong to God, to the world, do you know what it is? Joy. Why is that the case? Well, let's look at Isaiah 61. Look at this passage. It starts this way. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. You can't read that without just feeling better, can't you? (laughs) This is joy. That is what God offers his people. So what's going on here? A few questions. 
First, who is speaking here? You know, the servant that we've looked at in Isaiah 40 through 55 is never mentioned in this passage. We get a seemingly new character here, not called the servant. He's called the anointed one. And if you know anything about Hebrew, the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. So this is the Messiah speaking, the promised Savior of the world. But it's fairly clear that whoever this Messiah is, is the same guy that the servant is. How do I know that? Well, this verse sounds a lot like Isaiah 42, where we were first introduced to the servant. You remember that? Here, the character says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. What does God say when he introduces his servant? Behold, my servant, I have what? Put my spirit upon him. So it sure seems like the same guy. And in fact, this passage is so similar to the servant songs that many scholars just say this is servant song number five. There's four in Isaiah 40 to 55. This is the fifth one. So the servant is still talking here. What does the servant declare? What is he offering? If you were going to sum this up, here's what the servant is offering to God's people. He says, you have a chance to start fresh. You have a chance to start new. There's a very interesting phrase right in the middle of this passage. The servant says he declares the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. To understand what that means, we have to look back to the Old Testament. God does something very interesting in the law. Back in Leviticus 25, he institutes this very special year for his people. Every 50th year, it only happened once out of 50 years, there was a year and it was known as the year of the Lord's favor. The year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, do you know what happened? Everything starts over. Every debt is forgiven. You think student loans are a big deal? Uh Uh-uh. Every debt is forgiven. Now, what did that mean? Well, people who were indentured servants or who were enslaved because they're paying off debts, guess what? They're free. Anyone captive by that, guess what? They walk out free. Anyone poor, guess what? They have good news. The crushing weight of debt is gone. All of it. The debts are forgiven. The slaves are set free. Here's the other thing that happens. All land was returned to its original owners, back to when God had initially apportioned the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you know what this meant for every Israelite? It meant that once a generation Every family had a chance to start over completely. Completely. So no matter how hard life got, no matter what adverse conditions you'd faced, no matter how many stupid financial decisions you had made, it meant that ultimately your kids or grandkids wouldn't reap the consequences. There was a chance to start fresh. That's what the servant is saying. There's a chance to start over and make all things new. Now, here's what's interesting. The servant isn't just saying this is a year of jubilee, a year of God's favor. He says this is the year of God's favor. Here's what he means. The servant is saying all of those years of jubilee, they were all pointing to an event in the future where God was going to give a radical start over, a radical redemption to all of his people. And that brings up this question, okay, when is this fulfilled? When is Isaiah's vision fulfilled? Remember, Isaiah is speaking to people who are in exile. They're exiled in Babylon. And this sure sounds like a return from exile, doesn't it? 
You're indebted. You're under the weight of your sin. You're enslaved in Babylon. You're a captive. God sets you free. He gives you joy. You come back. You return to the land. And that's true. Israel did that. But what we've seen in this latter half of Isaiah is that the physical return from exile, it's a picture of a bigger return from exile. The, the physical return is a picture of humanity coming home to God and everything getting fixed. All sadness, all injustice, everything getting undone and God repairing everything in creation. This passage points ahead to this great day of jubilee when God would forgive and liberate and do everything. And, and isn't it interesting when Jesus comes on the scene and says, what's my ministry about? What does he quote? You are quiet this morning. There was a big lead up there, man. You could have said Isaiah 61 and you didn't. Ah, oh, come on, all right, it's all right. It's forgiven, all right? There's no debt, all right. Luke 4. Jesus is just starting his ministry. What does Luke say? that Jesus came to Nazareth. That was his hometown. He went in on the, the Sabbath day to the synagogue and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. What place did he find? The place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he reads Isaiah 61, one and two. <laughs> he rolls up the scroll he gives it back to the attendant. He sits down and the eyes of everyone is fixed on him and he just has a one-sentence sermon. <laughs> this is it. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and if Jesus had a mic, he would have dropped it right then because who preaches that kind of sermon? This passage is fulfilled. I'm the fulfillment. What's Jesus saying? that all of God's promises to restore his brokenhearted, indebted, enslaved, oppressed people are coming true in him, and he is going to lead the greatest liberation of all. That's what he's saying. And see, this is the vision Jesus just lives out in his ministry. It is the kingdom of God breaking through and making sad things come untrue. That's what he does everywhere. He's the one who finds those of low esteem and low status. And he preaches good news to the poor. He says, you have an eternal inheritance in heaven. You have a God who loves you. You have a family who can take care of you. He goes to those who are oppressed under the bondage of Satan and he delivers them from demons. He goes to those who are excluded and he brings them in to his family. Those who are enslaved to sin, he says, here's your liberation. To those who are brokenhearted, he gives the oil of gladness. Jesus shows up at funerals and never preaches a eulogy, right? He just says, nope, funeral's done out of the grave, let's celebrate, right? He just undoes everything sin does, and that's a picture of what he will do at the cross, where Jesus takes on all our sin, all our debt, all our enslavement, and he cancels it forever so that we are freed from sin, freed from the dominion of Satan, freed from the guilt, freed from the debt, freed from the shame, freed from all of it. That's Isaiah 61, 1 and Two, it's the greatest reversal of all time. See, if you feel spiritually bankrupt and poor today, Jesus is saying here, I have eternal riches for you. If you feel oppressed and under the weight of your sin, Jesus says, here's the keys. You can walk out of prison. You can be free. If you're brokenhearted, Jesus says, I know how to mend your heart. 
If you are in the shadow of death, weighed down, that's what those ashes symbolize, right? In the Old Testament, you would mark your forehead with ashes when you were under humiliation and death and grief. And Jesus says, I'm going to wipe that away. What am I going to give you in its place? A royal diadem of beauty. I'm going to replace the ashes of grief with a beautiful crown. I'm going to crown your life with honor. If you're weighed down by heaviness this morning and the seeming futility of life, if you say, that's my all-encompassing reality, Jesus says, I'll take that garment off of you and I'll replace it with a garment of praise. I will make the all-encompassing reality of your life thanksgiving to me. This sounds really good, doesn't it? This sounds like good news of great joy. When we see everything Jesus Christ has done for us, the natural response when we realize he did it for me, he did it for you, do you know what it is? Joy. It's joy. Verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land... At home with God, what do we possess? A double portion, a rich inheritance, and what do we have? Everlasting joy. Whoo! Everlasting joy. If you were going to complete the sentence, every human wants most, <laughs> everlasting joy. That's it. That's why I don't care if you believe in Jesus, don't believe in Jesus, that's what you're gunning for in life. That's what you're aiming for is joy that doesn't disappoint and won't go away. And Jesus says, it's a gift. Here you go. Everlasting joy is what you have in me. That is what everyone is after. And it's so elusive, isn't it? C.S. Lewis said, no one gets happiness by pursuing happiness. You ever realize? Right? People go at happiness as their end and then they get the thing and they're like, ah, oh, that didn't make me happy. What, what's the vision of the good life in our society? Often it's a materialist vision, right? If, if you get more wealth, you'll get more happiness. And whoever has the most wealth has the most happiness. But you know, it's interesting. Like wealth can make you less sad. Can it make you more happy? It can fix some things in your life. It can fix problems. There's utility to wealth. It benefits you. Does it make you happier? I was reading a, a survey of college freshmen they do this every year uh, to see what college freshmen, incoming students, prioritize. In, 22, in 2016, 82.3% of freshmen checked becoming very well off financially as an essential or very important life objective. That's actually the top priority now for college freshmen, becoming very well off financially. It's replaced raising a family as number one objective, right? So, so there's the, the cultural answer right there. What will deliver me happiness? A lot of money. Does it work? I was reading another thing this morning. I was reading the World Happiness Report. Did you know there's a World Happiness Report? There is. I was reading the World Happiness Report from 2018. And this is what economists do. They try to quantify things, right? So they try to quantify happiness. And they have a little score. It's called Subjective Well-Being, SWB. And everybody gets a score based on all of these quantitative measures. And here's what they found in 2018 for the U.S. Jeffrey Sachs, the economist, said in his report that income per capita has more than doubled since 1972. Happiness, the SWB score for people, has remained unchanged or has even declined. Okay? So 
More wealth. No, not more happiness. It doesn't work. It's what the world desperately wants. It's what seems impossible to get. And it's what Christ offers. And family, when we live with joy, joy when things go our way, things when don't go our way, when we have a hopeful confidence in God, do you know what it is? It's weird. It is so distinct to the world and it is compelling. Conversely, a bitter, complaining, disgruntled Christian, I don't care how much you do for other people, you are not an attractive advertisement for Christianity. You ever notice you can do the wrong, you can do the right thing with the wrong attitude and how off-putting it is to people? I've I've been convicted about this. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says this to church leaders. He says, let them lead with joy. Otherwise, it would be of no advantage to the people that are led. Oof. You know, I'm pretty good at doing the right thing. I'm not always good at doing the right thing with the right attitude, especially at home. Like, I'm a helpful guy around the house. I really am, okay? I don't just beat myself up here. I'll be honest about my successes. I am helpful. I am domestic, okay? (laughs) I clean, I cook, I do homework with the kids, but I have a joy quotient for the day. And when it's gone, it's gone. (laughs) And there's no coming back. And I switch. I can switch on a dime from glad dad to mad dad. Here's the thing, though. Mad dad is productive. I'm walking around the house and did stuff. Done. I can't believe that's dirty, too. Give me your homework. Right? And I get a lot done. And then I look back at the end of the day. And I'm like, why, why aren't you grateful for me? Why, doesn't anyone, why am I watching TV alone? No one wants to be around me. What happened? No one appreciates your service if you don't have joy. Because love rejoices in all things. You're not doing it with love if you're not doing it with joy. And for us as Christians, you can be dutiful about everything in the Christian life, but if you don't do it with delight, you are not compelling to the world. You are off-putting to the world. So you might say, Jeff, I'm not joyful. How do I become a joyful person? Here's the great news. Joy is just a response to good news. Right? You can't manufacture this thing. Joy is just... When you hear good news, what, how do you respond? Joy, right? That, that's all our joy is, is a response to good news. See, the, the world is constantly giving you bad news and good advice. You ever notice that? What's on the news? Bad, horrible, doom. But here's how to live your life. Here's how to be a good person. That's just a bad combination, right? Jesus, to give you joy, he doesn't say like, here's three life hacks to become more joyful. He's like, no, here's just good news. Here's good news about who I am. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word, good news, makes him what? Glad. See, our responsibility as as Christians isn't to manufacture this joyfulness in us. It's just to say, what has Jesus done for me? And you think about that till you get happier. That's it. So here's how I try to start my day, every day, with these two questions to find my happiness in Jesus. First, okay, why is the gospel good news for me today? Jesus is good news for me today, right? This is, 
we have to recapture the right nowness of the gospel, okay? The gospel is not just Jesus cleaned up my past and Jesus secures my future. That's all true. It's also that Jesus is very good news for me today and whatever I am going through. And so what anxiety is weighing you down? Jesus has a good word to speak to you. He has good news about who he is. Do you have guilt and regret? Jesus has good news. There's no condemnation in me. Are you lonely? Good news. Jesus died to be with you forever. Do you feel ashamed because of what someone has done to you or said to you or or thinks about you? Good news. Jesus takes those ashes of shame and gives you beauty. Royalty. Worried about the ends meeting in your life and having enough? Good news. You have an imperishable inheritance in heaven. In Christ, you have endless riches. He's going to take care of you. You you intimidated by your boss? Good news. Jesus is your boss. Ephesians 6. That's who you report to every day. He's a really good boss. He actually gave you his 401k plan, okay? You having difficulty with your spouse? Good news. Jesus is your true spouse and he loves you perfectly and he treats you better than you deserve and so you can treat your spouse better than they deserve. You having difficulty with your children? Good news. God loves difficult kids like you. Pursues you and gives you the grace and strength to pursue them. Are you shattered by grief? Good news. Jesus comes to you just to be present to you. Not to life hack your way into happiness or crowbar your life into smoothness. He just comes and says, I'm a man of sorrows and an ever-present help in need. I'm not going to give you self-help. I'm just going to be here and I know how to put together broken hearts. That's the Jesus that offers himself to you. That's good news. Good news. There's good news. I just have to focus on the good news and not the bad news until I can find joy. And then the expression of joy should be praise. What can I choose to praise God for today? Have you ever noticed that that most people don't spend a lot of time rejoicing that things go right? They just assume things will go right, but they, they love complaining when things go wrong. Like the gravitational pull of the human heart is towards criticism, cynicism, and complaining. And if you don't believe me, pay attention to the next conversation you have with anybody. Does the conversation gravitate toward, here's all the amazing, wonderful things that are happening. Or, you know, that wasn't that great. I didn't like that part of that. What'd you think about the service this morning? Jeff preached too long, right? Like, I don't know what it is, right? But that's what we gravitate toward, right? And we, do you know why we gravitate toward that? Because life isn't perfect. No part of life is perfect. And so there's always something to critique and say that's wrong. Every silver lining has a cloud. I said that right. Every silver lining has a cloud. There's always something to critique. And in our fallen human nature, we think that we're doing something beneficial by critiquing and complaining. You ever notice that? Like, like Sean and I have eaten at amazing restaurants with our friends and we'll walk out and we'll be like, the server took too long. And the steak, it was good. I've had better. I've had better, right? Like, like what are we doing? That was great. And we could do that with our lives where we become so relentlessly evaluative about everything that we lose sight of all the good things God does all the time. So here's my rule in the morning. I can't ask God for anything until I praise him for three things. That's just my little rule. 
I don't know why. There's no verse to justify it. I just, here's why though. I have to focus on good things God is doing for me because am I going to gravitate toward that? No, never. I'm going to focus on God. This is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. No, I'm going to choose to focus on what is good and to praise him for it. Here's what you need to understand. Joy, according to the Bible, it's a choice on what we focus on. That's why we're commanded to rejoice in the Bible. It's a moral category. Joy is not a personality trait, okay? It's not like, well, I'm not a joyful person like Jeff. I am, I'm not joyful naturally. I'm sanguine, okay? I'm just annoyingly positive. There's nothing virtuous about that. I'm just positive, right? I get sad, then I take a nap, right? Or I'm, I'm sad, then I eat a burrito and I feel better. That's just, that's just my personality. Joy is choosing what we focus on and what we call to mind and living in light of that in confident hope. See, we think joy and sadness are opposites, right? But they're not in the Bible because Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, which means there is a confident hope you can have in Jesus even when you are desperately sad about something you have in your life. I'd say the opposite of joy in the Bible isn't sadness. You know what it is from a moral standpoint? It's grumbling and complaining. That's the opposite of joy. People love to grumble and complain. Christians should not. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 2, the joy book, right? He says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Right? And you remember why he says that? That you should be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of light. What is Paul saying? How do we stand out in the world? We don't endlessly moan and gripe about everything. We have joy. We have confident expectations. Where do you need to pursue joy? Where do you need to stop relentlessly evaluating things in your life and just enjoy something? God wants to give us joy. Joy is a mark. That's the first point. The gospel creates a people of joy. Second, it creates a people of restoration. God restores us to be agents of restoration. Here's what that means. When the church is really functioning on all cylinders, this should be a place where human relationships get repaired and mended in a way they get fixed nowhere else in the world. That God actually reweaves the fabric of human community here. That's what he goes on to say. The servant announces this reversal of fortunes. Why? in order that they, God's people, might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Isn't that a great image? Oaks of righteousness. What does that mean? It means that God's people, God's aim is to actually make us people who live righteously, actually do what God requires and to make us sturdy in that. Not ferns of righteousness, blown around oaks of righteousness, right? Rooted, deeply, obedient to God because that's what glorifies God. That's what displays his character to the world. And in a sense, this brings the whole book of Isaiah full circle. 
Because back in Isaiah 1, God indicted his people for being corrupt, fruitless trees. He said, you're bad trees, Israel. You worship false gods. You're unjust toward your neighbor. You are, he says in chapter 1, an oak whose leaf will wither. So what does God do? He replants his people as oaks of righteousness. What does it mean? That, that we are made right with God and then that we actually start to want to obey God. That as we saw last week, we actually have the ability to do things that are pleasing to God and to treat the people around us the way God intended for them to be treated. And that starts to happen here Things start to get repaired in human community. That's why it goes on to say this, that they, God's people, the oaks of righteousness, shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This is the imagery of a return to exile, isn't it? That that God's people come back. What do they do? They rebuild. They restore This place that sin had devastated, they rebuild human community. But we know, we know there's a bigger redemption being talked about than just Israel getting back into the land. So so what is being talked about here? Here's what God is saying, that that when he restores us to himself, he puts us in a community, and, and finally, for the first time, people start to get human relationships right even after generations of devastation and division and destruction, there is a healing of the nations that begins to happen here and the things that divided and destroyed us start to get undone and we just get a glimmer of it in the new community of God's people. All the ethnic divisions... God starts to overcome those and unite us around Christ. The divisions in class that these people live in this neighborhood and these people live in this neighborhood, they start to get overcome because we're all part of one family with one father, with one savior. The, the tensions in marriages and hurts that could never get resolved, God does something to resolve and in the gospel he brings healing to those places. The estrangement from parents and children, God undoes that. God undoes generational patterns of brokenness. No matter how many devastating generations you've had, God intervenes and writes you a new family tree. I love seeing that. I love talking to the young dads I discipled. And they didn't have a good dad. And their dad didn't have a good dad. And their dad didn't have a good dad. And there is absence as far back as they can remember. And finally, the gospel is transforming them into a dad who stays and loves their kids sacrificially. And I'm just like, the generational impact of what is happening there, you have no idea because it is stopping with you, the destruction, and your descendants are reaping a blessing. This is the place, family, where human community starts to get rebuilt. As God says in Isaiah 58, we are called repairers of the breach, restorers of the streets to dwell in. In the church, we start to see it. When the church is acting according to God's blueprint. Now, why would God make us this way? He tells us in verse 8, this is about what God cares about. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. What is God saying here? 
We saw this earlier in the series. When God talks about justice, it's way bigger than just God punishes bad people and rewards good people. Justice in the Bible, it includes that, but it also includes God repairing everything in creation so it worked the way God intended it to work. And when God says, I love justice, that's what he means. I love fixing and mending what is broken. See, God looks at his relationship with his people and says, it's broken. I love rectified relationships. So what does he do? He intervenes and he saves his people so they can finally be in right relationship with them. And because God loves right relationships, he loves us acting rightly. He hates robbery and wrong when we defraud each other. And so he transforms us into people who can what? Act rightly. Act according to his blueprint. Treat each other the way he wants us to treat each other. And he is faithful to do this because we deserve it? No. Why? Because God made a promise to his people to make him this people. And so God gives them a recompense. Why? According to his promises, not according to their behavior. See, if God had given Israel a recompense according to their behavior, <laughs> we're doomed. <laughs> if it's just justice, okay, punish the bad people. No. What does God do? He comes up with a plan in faithfulness to his covenant, where he can judge sin and rescue sinners and transform them. And so God is just in punishing sin. He does that in Christ. He's just in forgiving sinners, in rectifying us to this new state. Justice in the Bible is all of that. It's way bigger, way broader than what we talk about in our culture when we talk about justice. It's God fixing everything broken, and that's the point. God loves right relationships and that God restores us to be agents of restoration. We should be people who seek to live in right relationship all the time. Do you know why? What did God do? <laughs> he sent Jesus who paid an infinite cost so that we could be in right relationship with him. That's why we care so much about repairing the torn fabric of human community in everything we do. Because no one cares more about right relationships than who? God. That's the model, right? That's why I keep initiating toward a friend and seeking reconciliation even when I don't feel like they deserve reconciliation, right? Why? Because <laughs> did I deserve reconciliation with God? No. And yet he keeps initiating toward me. That's why I care about getting my marriage relationship right and forgiving and working with my spouse because God pursued me to make things right with me. This is our model for everything. It's all a response to what God does with us, right? Why seek justice and mercy in the world? It's because of the gospel. That's the model, right? Why would I care about the poor passionately? Because I was poor before God, spiritually bankrupt, and God gave me his riches. Why would I care about the stranger or the immigrant? Because I was an alien, I was outcast, and God took me in and made me a citizen of his nation, the nation of heaven. Why would I care about vulnerable children or the orphan? Because I was that vulnerable child. I was a child of wrath, and then God intervened and adopted me into his family. Why would I care about loving widows, like the Bible says constantly? Because I was widowed and bereaved and had no one, and Christ took me in as the good spouse and united himself to me. I keep going all morning with this, all right? But the point is the gospel is the model for everything we seek to do in repairing human relationships. And that's the motive as well. 
That's why we do things, right? You don't do justice and mercy because you think you're going to fix the world. If you thought that, you would give up. (laughs) You do it because God has gone to such great lengths to repair his relationship with you. That's why you would care about doing justice and mercy. It's in response to him. The world is Jesus' thing to fix, not me. He just calls me to be faithful in response to him. That gives me the motive to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it again. And so the question we have to ask ourselves today, okay, if God cares this much about human relationships, what relationships broken in my life? Where can I repair? Where where do the the cities need to be rebuilt? (laughs) Is it with your spouse? And you walked in with something festering? Go deal with it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let bitterness creep in. Is it with your kids where you know you have to have a heart-to-heart conversation and connect with them? Is it in your neighborhood, someone who's just neglected and no one else is going to reach out to you? You know it's going to be you. Is it in the church, someone that you just go, man, I wonder if anyone has checked in on them lately. Do that. Is a need that you can meet. We are agents of that restoration. And family, when you look at the first three centuries of the church, they lived this out and they were so revolutionarily weird in the world because it was this little signpost to the one place where human communities seemed to work right. God really cares about us getting our relationships with each other right. I'm a, I'm a church optimist, not a church pessimist, Okay. <laughs> Everybody, oh, the church is doomed in America. No, it's not. Church is going to be fine. You know why? Because Jesus is committed to purifying his bride. There's going to be ugliness. There's going to be failures. There's going to be faults. But Jesus is so committed to this vision. That's the good news. We can't manufacture joy. We can't fix these relationships. Jesus can. He's going to get his way, and he's going to make us a beautiful bride adorned with the gospel who displays the beauty of God to the world. I'm just convinced he's going to do it because he says I can't stop his plan. That's good news, right? And and I encourage you, if you're investigating Christianity, hopefully you have seen something compelling in the Christians around you, that there's a joy that they have that you don't, that the way they treat each other in human community is different than anything you've ever seen anywhere. And I'll end with this, and I promise I'm ending now, okay? Jesus does something very interesting when he quotes Isaiah 61. Remember, Isaiah 61 says that the servant proclaims two things, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. Year of favor, day of vengeance, they go together. You know, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, he includes the part about the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know what part he doesn't include? The day of vengeance. Do you know why? Because the day of vengeance is not fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, but his second There is a gap between the first part of verse 2 in Isaiah 61 and the second. We are in the year of the Lord's favor right now. This is the time of salvation. This is the time when every debt can be cleared, that you can start over completely. And we are living in this time before the day of vengeance. And believe me, God's going to fix everything. And that includes judging and punishing sin and sinners who do not submit to him. But the offer is out there now. This is the year of favor and jubilee and you can start over today. Clean slate completely. And if you find that compelling, you would pray a prayer like this and you can pray with me now. You'd say, Lord Jesus, 
you offer everlasting joy. You offer a family that I'm created to belong to. I want that. I confess that I've done wrong, that I have separated myself from you. Thank you for coming and dying for my sins, paying a debt I couldn't pay that I might be forgiven. Thank you for rising from the dead to bring me home to God. I want the joy you offer. I accept you as my Savior. I follow you as my King and Master. Come into my life. Make me the person you want me to be. Amen.